Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jessie. I'm Kelly. On episode 23, we're discussing City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty, the first novel in the Devabad trilogy. When Nahri, a con artist from Cairo with a magical healing ability, accidentally summons the powerful jinn, a powerful jinn warrior, shenanigans ensue. Understatement of the year. Nahri discovers she is part Deva, a jinn tribe that worships fire, and perhaps more importantly, she seems to be a Nahid, the Deva family with healing abilities that used to rule the magical world. Nari travels with the jinn warrior Dada Yavahush, aka Dada, to Devabad, the city of Brass, and former seat of the Nahid Council that is now occupied slash ruled by the Katanis, a Gaziri jinn family originally from Amgazira, which corresponds to the Arabian Peninsula, which we'll talk about later in the world building section. This book is full of political intrigue, magic, and complicated characters. Initial reactions. I stand this book so hard. I listened to the audiobook. It was really well done. I love this novel. It was complex. The characters and conflicts were nuanced. The plot lines have explicit political implications, both historical and for our present moment. There is radical world-shifting organizing going on and thinking happening on multiple fronts. I care deeply about the characters, even the ones I don't particularly like or I don't think I would be friends with, like Ali or Muntadir or Zainab. I think that they're all really compelling. What do you think? Um, I really enjoyed this book. I love the concept of learning about the world of the Deva and Jin through Nari, who is part of the culture because of her background, but she comes to learn about the culture without the prejudices of having been part of the culture because she's new to the world. Um, there was so much to learn about the world, and I love learning about it. And I can't wait to, wait to read the next book. There's your Ravenclaw showing. <laughs> <laughs> Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobe. I don't even know where to begin (laughs) with the world building in City of Brass because it is goddamn masterful. There's so much going on here. So maybe the map is a good place to start. Yeah. At the beginning of the book, there's this really amazing map. And what I love is that it's like an actual map of our earth. Of our, our, the real world. The real world, the empirical world. And so it spans from Eastern Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, Mesopotamia, India, India, Central, and even like almost to East Asia. Mm-hmm. And that references important geographical features like rivers, in, like empirically real rivers, the like Nile, the Nile, <laughs> the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Indus, and the deserts like the Sahara, the Gobi, all these things. Like just so awesome that it's using its world building with the actual world but not it didn't seem campy it didn't seem shallow it didn't seem like a shortcut right it may be a little like not easier to do but better to do when you take a book back in time instead of doing it in the present day because you're not just layering on something that people will understand and will be like dated and not that long like Mm -hmm. when we read city of bones like they're looking for a phone book and we're like what the fuck nobody looks for a phone book now (laughs) i forgot about that (laughs) yeah that doesn't age well no but when you put something in the past it's much easier to age that because like we know the pyramids exist we know about the nile well some of us know about those things so it's a little easier to do that um and i really liked that in the beginning of the story there was a lot of like quote unquote real history sprinkled into the stories so we kind of see about like 
I guess, some invasion that happened in Cairo and like the French are coming in and taking over. It's 18th century Cairo, right? Talking about the Ottoman Empire yes. and the Turks and right. the French. And yeah, that I, I had kind of forgotten about that until you mentioned it right now. Yeah. And it was for me, I was like, I don't know anything about this time period in this place or probably anywhere, if I'm being honest, like mid 18th century, I don't know that much about. It's fine. So for me, I was like, wow, this is a lot of history going on here. So it was also hard for me as a reader to decipher what was actually happening at the time and what wasn't, but be like what was real history and what was like the made up history, some of it. Um, but I think that like adds to the story and that you don't really need to unravel that. It's not really that important to the story. I agree with you 100%. And I think that murkiness is actually one of the things that contributes to how rich and strange mm-hmm. and wonderful this story is and the world building and the magical system is because right. it's really leveraging all of these histories and legends and I don't know aesthetics from all these different places and all these right. different peoples and but but doing it in what it seems at least to be a respectful way which right. is really not easy to do at all no I imagine not it, I can't imagine like kudos to the author for doing their research and I mean I hope I'm I'm not from any of these communities right. so I'm sure like I'm sure other voices can hold the author accountable if mm-hmm. there are issues right but at least to my untrained super white <laughs> I not untrained I am getting a PhD right but <laughs> Well, and I'm on Twitter pretty often, and yeah. you do kind of see those authors who are not respectful of cultures and of people, and they get called out on Twitter. And I would say that like there's a wide range of people, both non-white and white. Mm-mm-mm. There are a range of people, both people of color and white people, who feel that this story was done in a respectful way. And you know, she's not getting called out as being like non-respectful about mm-hmm. the stories that she's writing right which is probably a good sign we have coerced political marriages in this story this was hmm i don't know how to feel about it because nari in a sense is like making this choice to marry mutineer and she's like trying to get the most money out of the deal but at the same time, it's kind of the king's idea. And so I kind of feel like I don't know where to take this. Like she doesn't want to marry him, but she kind of feels like she has to. The way I interpreted this was, um, I guess, giving more of the benefit of the doubt to Nahri mm-hmm. and her just doing whatever she can using the system that exists to get ahead and right. then to like break the wheel eventually right. is what I'm hoping. I hope so too. Hashtag although, break the wheel. <laughs> although in the end it kind of sucked because she had to marry him to make sure she stayed safe. Right. As opposed to getting like the best deal out of it she that she wanted in the beginning. But I think that that's a really important commentary on how particularly marginalized people, um, sometimes have to do whatever like survival is resistance right. to a to a large extent mm-hmm. and in a lot of situations right and nari's doing what she can because and she's reacting she's very swift she's reacting to changing circumstances mm-hmm. to the shifting situation on the ground as these pol- politics play out in the novel i think she's really fucking smart right and that it it makes sense that it would be part of the world especially because politically expedient marriages mm-hmm. were a big component of like diplomacy and how ruling worked 
mean, now in some places, but particularly in the past. Yeah. It is interesting because Mutineer does not want to marry her at all. No, Mutineer hates her. Yeah. Which I kind of like, why? Like, why does he hate her so much? Because he hates the Nahids. Yeah. But like, that's not really a good reason. So we'll see what happens between the two of them. I'm guessing they won't get married because I want her with someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Dara is obsessed with how things used to be in the past, which was super frustrating to me. Kelly just did a huge eye roll. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We get to see a few flashbacks and some explanations of what things used to be like for him and in the society he lived in. And I think I was really annoyed with Dara's talk about the past and that it was based on his people being the top echelon of people. And because he is prejudiced towards other group, there's no consideration as to how the past was much worse for people like the Shafit who were being killed for just being alive. It was really frustrating to me and brought to mind some current political things going on in our world. Would you like to expand upon that? Yeah. So like, Mm, I won't use certain phrases, but talking about mm, wishing we could go back to a simpler time in America. Um, oh, my God. Joe Biden just did this. No, oh, he's the worst. I'm sorry. I'm not a fan <laughs> of Joe Biden right now. <laughs> That's OK. I just heard about this. Oh, the, this. Actually, I just listened to an episode of Pod Save America. I'll link to it in the show notes where they talk about this. And they're like buddy buddy with Joe Biden because they were former Obama speechwriters. Right. Um but they're like, nah, this like referencing how the in the good old days you could you used to be able to work with the segregationist, racist, right. asshole politicians and get like stuff done, quote unquote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a whole rabbit hole. We don't have to go down. But it totally reminds me of what you're saying. Yeah. But also terrible because it's the same rhetoric that the other side uses to exactly. say like we need to go back to a simpler time when America was a great place. And it's like it was a great place for white people or white men. It wasn't a great place for everyone else yep so i'm not here for it Dara. Mm-mm. no <laughs> that sort of nostalgia is really dangerous it's such a unifying type of rhetoric and discourse but it's so simplistic and actually just outright wrong it's just right. a fundamental misunderstanding of how history works mm-hmm. and what our contemporary reality is and privilege and all these sorts of intersecting types of oppression right and I think made more difficult by the fact that we don't know Dara's whole story until later in the book. So we don't know exactly what he's done in the past and really how terrible he was to the Shafit and throughout his long history of being the scourge. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about how this world building is also temporal, chronological, because Dada's main B for the the large battle mm-hmm. and his uprising was 1400 years ago. That's right. when Zaidi Al-Qahtani conquered Devabad right. to save the Shafi, in theory. Yeah. Um, I have opinions about that. <laughs> about... I'm not really sure what actually happened. It's, it's a really good show of how like history can get muddled by not only the conquerors, but also the losing side, right? So we don't know what happened that's actually a, to either group of people. That's a really, really good point. I'm saying this a lot. I'm sounding like a broken record. <laughs> You're just full of good points, Jesse, today. The novel dramatizes that really well about mm-hmm. how history is so subjective. You know, it's written right. by the winners and everyone has their different story about it. And um, I guess putting those narratives together and that sort of archival work is really important. Right. But even like in this story, the losing side has a 
different story that seems to be the opposite of the Katani story. And so we don't really know and whose they, side is true and like how they actually intersect to tell what is true. But they both seem to be true. They right. both seem to have at least truth in them. Yeah. And I'm sure the truth is in there somewhere in all of it but it's hard for us the reader to know what's tr- what actually happened and i'm just fascinated by this and mm-hmm. i want to keep reading more this is masterful plot building world building i wish it was a duology so i could read the next one and be like okay i know it happened <laughs> but there's three so i don't know when the third one comes out neither do i we can look it up uh, yeah <laughs> wands out Let's discuss all things magic. Technically, this is part of world building, but I think it segues nicely into our magic section and our conversation about the novel's magic system. So there are different beings in this world that are made from different elements. The peri are made from air, the jinn, slash originally they were called the deva from fire, the marid from water, and then humans from earth. Very Avatar The Last Airbender. Love this (laughs) shit. Love it. Beings then have different abilities and affinities and their magic does different things. And they seem, it also seems like their religious systems are um, kind of defined by the elements that they are most closely associated with. It's really interesting. We see that the jinn and humans can obviously procreate together. I wonder if that is the case with the other, like the Perry and the Marid, like can they also have like offspring from like, each other and the other groups that's a good question i know that there's some drama with the marid right about how zadi al-katani allied with the marid in order to conquer devabad which right. is like supposedly a big no-no i'm still <laughs> unclear on this yeah i just realized that like two of the groups have created a new fifth group almost yeah the shafit yeah so i wonder what happens with the other groups and i'm curious if like if the marid and humans right ever procreated that would probably be called a different thing right or if the marid and the peri that would be a different name the jinn and the marid different name you know yeah because it now seems like ali is going to be this sort of jinn marid right um hybrid yes definitely i'm excited for that i don't know it's weird because he doesn't remember really what happened and he seems to like come out of it, but he also seems to have like some control over water, but he also already seemed to have an affinity for water almost. So yeah, I'm interested to see what's going to happen. I'm fingers crossed he doesn't die too fast, but he's a POV in the story. So I'm like, he'll be fine. <laughs> so interfering with humans is why the prophet King Suleiman cursed the jinn in the first place. He split them into six tribes so that they would spend more time fighting one another than the humans very smart strategy not saying i agree just saying it was effective he basically created races yeah like what's the story the tower of babel how give everyone different languages so that they can't communicate with each other and causes fighting i think you're a genius (laughs) i just have very slight historical knowledge of like i took a a bible as literature class so it's a little helpful well it's you're you're full of all sorts of gems today making my day you're welcome that's the ravenclaw part of me (laughs) it's beautiful speaking of ravenclawing Mm -hmm. ready to ravenclaw a little ready to ravenclaw a little i think because this is such a complex magical system and world building system it help that it's helpful to kind of recap what the six different tribes are and so i use this there's um 
I kind of took notes from the six tribes little three page thing that happened that's at the beginning right before the map on the paperback version, at least the one that I read. So the Gaziri live in Amgazira, which is corresponds to the Arabian Peninsula. The rebel king Zaidi al-Qahtani came from there. They intermingled with the Shafit. And so supposedly this gave them like, I don't know, some sort of protective or I don't like respect for, but that's totally the wrong word. The Shafit. So debatable. Because maybe that was originally what happened when Zaidi al-Qahtani conquered Devabad and defeated the Nahids. But we have seen throughout this entire story that 1,400 years later, the Shafi's lives still suck. Yeah. And the Gaziri currently rule Devabad and possess Suleiman's seal. They have a lot of power that way. And their assassins are awesome, supposedly. Right, with the Zulfikar. Yeah, and the Zulfikars. And they have a language that no one else can speak, which is like really rad. Yeah. Not even Nari can understand it. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a magical language. It's like secret language just for one group of people. Why don't we have a secret language? <laughs> because I'm not good at languages. <laughs> Second, we have the Ayanle. They live by the head headwaters of the Nile in eastern Africa. And it's a land described as a land rich in natural resources like salt and gold. And then that gives them material wealth. There's some history with the Gaziri insinuated but i'm not really sure what um they're not afraid of water and ali is half gazir and half ayanle do the ayanle do they have bad feelings towards the shafit or no i can't remember i can't remember okay because i know ali is named after zaidi al-katani and it's kind of interesting that he ends up like having feelings like of wanting to help the Shafit. Mm -hmm. I, what I'm remembering now that you mentioned that, that um, the Ayanle, he's like not allowed to see his mom. Right. And that there is his uncle was another person who is funding the Tanzim, oh, which right. is the Shafit Black mm -hmm. Panther-esque right. type um, or activist organization group. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say my... Um, like your gut feeling. Thank you. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Intuition, whatever, <laughs> is that the Ayanle are more sympathetic towards okay. the Shafi in like an actual measurable material. Right. I will support you kind of way. Okay. Next up, we have the Devas. Their land is by the Gozan River, corresponds to Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia modern day Iran, Iraq, Syria type of area. And Devabad, a.k.a. the City of Brass, was the seat of the Nahid Council, which were the healers, the healing tribe of Deva who used to rule all the jinn and mag the magical world. Deva is the original name of the jinn beings, um, but this particular tribe claimed it as their own, and they don't like being called jinn. I was a little bit confused with this languaging at certain points in the novel, but once I read this, I was like, oh, it makes sense. And now the Deva live in occupied territory. So Zaidi al-Qahtani, since the 1400 years ago, conquering whatever. The Devas, specifically the Nahids, their like magical royal family, were super against jinn and humans reproducing. And so they killed Shafit systematically. Which is why it's odd that Nahi would even exist. At the beginning of the story, we were like led to believe that she was Shafit, part human, part Nahid. And by the middle of the story, we're like, her mom her her mom Maniza yeah quote unquote because I don't know if it's actually her mom now put a spell on her to make her look Shafit 
And then now I'm just not sure. Because Gasson was like, oh, it's Maniza. And then decided to tell this story that there was a curse on her. Right. Which is not true. Because then at the end, he reveals that she actually does have human blood yeah. or something. That he was lying the whole time. But he's also a liar. So I don't know if he's lying at the end. <laughs> so many lies. So many lies. So complicated that I was. I just was like, I don't know. Fourth, we have the Sarain. They're from northern Africa, Sahara Desert area. They're mystical and mysterious to other jinn. There was less information about them. We don't hear about them that often. Um, and supposedly they're skilled sailors across the sand and the sea. So that made me rem- remind me of like the sand skiffs across the oh, right. sea <laughs> in the Grisha trilogy. Fifth, we have the Agnivanchi. They're from the region corresponding to modern-day India, tons of resources, and also separated geographically by rivers and mountains from other Jinn tribes, so they aren't into Devabad politics that much. We don't hear about them too much either. And finally, the Takaristanis from Central Asia, modern-day Tibet, China, Nepal, Gobi Desert area. Their society, I guess, is kind of organized around caravans, trading, and associated with this like ancient Silk Road. Yeah, and I guess for like the last three, we don't really see many of those kind of people. There's the one, Agnavashan, how do you say that? Ag- Agnavanchi. Yeah, and that is the, like the courtesans, the people mm, that's who right. work at the brothel. Yeah. Is that what it is? Probably. I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. I just see girls dancing. A strip club? It's an, a strip club. An old, uh, old-timey strip club. Definitely. <laughs> It's like a speakeasy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of wine there. Yeah. There's all sorts of things. It, it seemed kind of cool, actually. But yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> pillows. Yeah. Pillows. <laughs> Cuddle party. Yeah. They yeah. have those. Oh, really? It's an actual thing. Okay. My guess is in Kingdom of Copper, because Ali gets exiled to Amgazira, this world building slash magic system is going to expand. We're going to see different magical powers in book two. We're going to see different people um, that we didn't really see in this last book exactly so we'll get to know more about Amgazira definitely mm-hmm. and then I think that we'll learn more about I think he'll get more in touch with his Hayanle side right because of the Marid and the water connection and how he likes swimming and he was always kind of connected to that before and now with like the possession and his powers and stuff right and I'm guessing we might see more of the other people like I'm guessing we might see more travel going on especially to make a group of people with who are sailors like what's the point if there's not going to be any sailing <laughs> We'll see how I feel about it once it happens. I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> how are you feeling about the potential of a travel book? Well, there was a lot of traveling in this book, but so much ha- happens that like every time we stopped to do things that it was fine. So we'll see. I have a feeling that you're going to suspend your mistrust of the travel trope. Maybe. Because it seems like you're into this novel. I guess the real problem is Lee Bardugo ruined it for me, but then she like fixed it kind of. <laughs> just wait until we read the reread crooked kingdom i'm very excited one tiny little thing is that different tribes use different weapons so also part of the wheel building world building also part of wheel building either one (laughs) either one just there's so much attention to detail everywhere i also thought it was really interesting that some of the people i guess um the people from amgazira were the only ones who could use the zulfikar and no one else could except for weirdly dara that seems like it wasn't supposed, like he shouldn't have been able to use it, but he could. He's has 1,400 years of practice. It's more than 10,000 hours. Yeah. I'm also just not sure if there's something about him having been like part, maybe an Ifrit. 
I don't know. It was it was all very confused in my head about like what he could and couldn't do and what was and wasn't possible for him. Intention is key to actually performing magic. Nari gets this lecture how many times? Several. And can't seem to figure it out until she does. Yeah. Well, someone needs to be really hurt that she wants to save for her to figure it out. Right. And she's like, I'm not going to fix this asshole who's like being a dick to me. No. Why would I do that? Respect. Yeah. (laughs) Boundaries. Yeah. (laughs) She's not even getting paid for it initially. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. And Nisreen mentions that a scattered brain doesn't help with magic. Um, Just a side note that I would be in a lot of trouble. I would like to concur. Yeah, you would. (laughs) (laughs) But also funny because I'm like, Nisreen, like, obviously this teaching style that you're doing isn't working for her. Maybe try a different teaching style. Well, yeah, pedagogically, that didn't work very well. She's just not being very nice about the whole thing. And she's like, you have to be able to do it. And that's like, well, she obviously can't because you're not showing her how. So, like, maybe slow down a little bit. Like, maybe learn how to be a teacher or get someone else to teach her. (laughs) It's almost like a stoic type philosophy, like do the thing and then you'll have done the thing and then it will be done and then you'll have done it. Which might work for some people and some types of learning, like things that are like physically can be taught, but we're talking about magic. like And emotions. Yeah. Like you can't just be like, crush it in your mind vice, Nari. Yeah. She literally is afraid of killing someone. Like maybe walk it back a little bit and help her through that before you try and just be like yeah fix this person or be like here's 20 books well nisreen doesn't want her to learn how to read so (gasps) rude i know but ali is like let me teach you nari has the ability to understand any language spoken and can heal people i would like both of those powers um she does struggle with healing the jinn um but understanding any language would be quite beneficial to someone who is healing all different types of races of people who speak all different kinds of languages. And it's such a unifying ability mm-hmm. that I don't think the Nahids used to that advantage. It doesn't seem like They him. used it for evil. They didn't use it for good. Or maybe they used it for good, but only for specific people, not the Shafi, whom yeah. they killed all the time. Yes. So I think Nari is this figure who comes from the human world but who has Nahid slash deva special magical powers and has this like unifying i don't know potentiality around her which is why i think she has like positive feelings toward the shafi even though everyone in her culture doesn't because she came from a world where i mean i'm guessing the shafi are like one step above humans and she always thought she was human so of course her positive interactions with humans would affect how she feels about them and nari has the ability because she comes from the human world to see all the nuance within Mm. the humans which is just like this monolithic i don't know other race meet from earth like other elemented race that the other that these other magical beings don't really have any meaningful interaction with right but nari knows all of that and has that's a lot of really important i guess background knowledge that she brings to the table yeah i agree um i totally agree with you though that this is like my dream superpower slash magical power, the language one. I speak a few different languages and it gets easier <laughs> as you learn languages to learn how you learn them. It's kind of like the ball starts rolling downhill right. and it gains momentum. And that helps, but it it's not easy. And certain people find it easier than others. And I teach language, so I see that all the time. But along with Dr. Stranging, aka studying and becoming magical, languages would be a really rad power. Super Ravenclaw of you. It's very Ravenclaw. <laughs> Ravenclaw forever. 
Again, in this magical system, we see true names that are crucial. The biggest point of when this is becomes important is at the very end of City of Brass when Ali falls into the water and gets possessed by the Marid spirit and gives his true name to the voice in his head or whatever, however that actually happens. Right. I don't know. Who knows? And then he becomes a fish lake creature. Yeah. Which was, I was like, huh, okay. I'll take it. I don't care. <laughs> I loved how like the things were stuck to his skin. Yeah. That it's kind of like this physical manifestation of the internal possession that's happening to him. That's really cool. It reminded me of like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, on like, yes. what's his name? Like Davy Jones. Yeah. Like as the people have been on Davy Jones' ship longer, they start like accumulating all these sea things on their body. Totally. You're totally right. That is a really, really good reference to bring up. Yeah. So the true names is similar to what we've seen in stories about the Fae and true names giving you power over them. It was weird because Dara was very hesitant to give Nari his true name, but I don't really know what she could have done with it. Like, people are telling each other their names, like the different djinn are. And also interesting that Nahri could summon Dariyavahush without knowing his name. Right. But how? I should have gone back and looked at, like, what she said. I don't remember. I don't remember either. What I think is really fascinating and intriguing is that this naming aspect is important in a lot of different magical traditions from... Mm -hmm all over our world like it we saw it in these stories based more off of like celtic mm -hmm. gaelic welsh magical traditions um like the fae in uh holly black's books mm -hmm. and then we see it all over here right it's so cool it probably speaks to something about there being some universal stories that we have that are like very important to each culture but like really obviously have some kind of genesis from the same place maybe it's like a I don't know. Species specific is hard, but like a human mm -hmm. or post-human or whatever we are. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know. Because I don't really think of names as being that important. I think it's kind of magical. We get magic carpets. Oh my God. I loved this part. I was like, this is really cool. I really liked that. It didn't seem like Aladdin, no. you know, like so exoticizing, orientalizing. Like, it was just how they got around. Like, Nahri just wakes up and she's flying around in a carpet. But it actually makes sense in the magical system with the world, with the cultures that are right. in, you know, working to um, form the foundation of uh, this novel and how it's working. It just made sense. It didn't feel like, oh, hey, that's, you know, I'm going to lift that because mm -hmm. it works. Yeah, because if that were the case, why couldn't you just fly around and like pillows or chairs or right really and literally anything so cool <laughs> it was cool different parts of the palace are moving around kind of when we get to the like the beginning of Ali's story and I think we're supposed to understand that that's because Nari is on her way back to Devabad not much else comes from this as we go through the story and get a little farther along. So I hope we see more of it in the future. The only other part that I think relates to that is at the very end when Dara is making the passageway in right. the palace. That's the only other time I see the palace moving around, but it reminded me of like how the Hogwarts stairs move around. Right, yeah, and there's same. like a trick stair yeah. or a tapestry, yeah. know, like a secret passage but or whatever. But it also like really freaks Ali out. He's like, I don't like how like things are moving around mm -hmm. or this painting looks cleaner than it did before and he thinks it's like haunted by the Nahids. so i thought that was really cool i think that's really cool that it's um giving some sort of 
I'm not quite sentience, but maybe, or agency or something, power, I guess, to the supposedly inanimate castle. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just makes it more magical. I really hope Navri leverages this to her advantage in well, future books. Part of me thinks that this is like a sign that we're like in the world, the story we're making our way back to the Nahids being in charge. And that's why the palace is like reorienting itself to be the way it was, was when the Nahids were in power. We'll have to wait and see. Wands, Wands away. away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. Let's start with the Ifrit, because I think it's a good transition from the magical system into conflict and villains, because they are both magical and villainous. (laughs) (laughs) I know, mind blown. Mind blown. They're the sworn enemies of the Nahid family, and the Ifrits enslave other jinn to fuck with the humans. Because they're not allowed to. This is part of Suleiman's curse, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. And there's relics and jinn slaves... And Dara is, was enslaved by the Efrit. So this mm-hmm. is why this becomes important, right? Is because it changes the course of Dara's life. Right. I mean, he wasn't doing great things to begin uh, with. No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> I would say that neither of us are really sure how this works all the way. And nope. I look forward to learning more. Yeah. I probably should have done some research on Ifrits. I'm sure that there's a ton of information on the internet. Oh yeah, we totally we see those in Sabah Tahir's novels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're the sand wind beings or that attack Helene and right. Elias at one point. Mm-hmm. And they're like making a comeback as like magic is coming back into the world. Yeah, but also messing with humans. So, there we go. I'm sure that there's a ton there. Yeah. And we're noobs and we don't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> but we're also okay saying things we don't know about. Yeah. We'll learn. <laughs> Another part of how this enslavement works is that tattoos are a record of the number of human masters killed. Dada has tattoos from his hand all the way up one of his arms and all the way across his chest and back, it sounded like, correct? Yeah, I think so. Tattoos, part of the allure. Yeah. But also, like, very scary and violent. I mean, he was killing people who were, like, trying to take control of him, so I don't really feel bad for those people. No. But at the same time, I'm like, you're also a terrible person. So you're, you're all bad. You're all bad. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be like a darkling situation (laughs) where I don't think he's mm, all bad. I guess we can talk about Dara right now in the, in the get me Kylo Ren. Yeah. Dara is a complicated character because he's doing terrible things, but he's also trying to protect Nahri, our main character. The hard part for me was in the beginning I dislike him, obviously, because he seems like he's coming to murder her. And then he's very protective of her. He's trying to get her to Devabad to save her. But then you find out he... Has ulterior motives. Not just that. He, like, killed a shit ton of people, maybe for no reason. And tortured them. Yeah. Men, women, children, like... Indiscriminate killing. Everyone. And I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. Nope. No, no, though. Yeah, when they went at the very end, when Ghassan recounts the scourge of Kwaizi and why Dara has that name and reputation. Oh, it's fucking tragic. It reminded me of the Poppy War. Yeah. And all of that yeah. that happened, like the carnage that happened in the Poppy War. Mm-hmm. This 
kind of brings me to a point that I wanted to bring up in this section, actually, this this whole for the greater good argument mm-hmm. that we see Dada doing. Like, Nari, you're going to do this and you're going to have a husband because you need to have kids. And, right. you know, this all sucks. And I know you don't want to be in the palace, but we got to do this and blah, blah, blah. But then it's totally fine. Like he, for some reason, probably because he's like a dude bro, right. feels like he can control her. No. Yes. And Gassan uses the for the greater good argument as far as scapegoating the Shafit and keeping Nari and the Deva under control in order to, enormous scare quotes here, maintain peace in Devabad. Which isn't working at all. No, it's not. And we've seen this in a lot of the books that we've read in for the podcast um, slash YA in general. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking Children of Blood and Bone. Harry Potter. Uh, Yeah, this is very Dumbledore Grindelwald. Yeah, I mean, literally for the greater good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it's probably good, I think, in YA, especially because we're trying to teach teenagers, young people, how to go throughout life. And one of those things that maybe is important to teach them is that authority figures don't have it all figured out and they can be wrong. Mm -hmm. And that these young people who have different ways of seeing the world and different ways of doing things can be like no that's enough right like basta yeah and we're building a different world now which i feel like is really i'm hopeful that that's happening i want to no i didn't say i was optimistic (laughs) i didn't say i was optimistic i'm saying like i really want to be devoted to the possibility of that happening okay okay just speak it into being exactly (laughs) and i think that i agree with you that this is a almost a larger conversation in YA about means and ends. Mm-hmm. We talked about this with the Akameth episode right. and how um, about like resand and Azrael and torture mm-hmm. and all that stuff and how, you know, I felt very conflicted about that. This comes up all the time and I don't really think that we get a, there's no real resolution to it. I don't think in any of the books that we've read or no. any that I'm familiar with, it stays very murky and complicated. When I guess it's a good lesson, like life is murky and complicated and we don't get straight answers. And even when we're learning about the, about Dara, we get these two almost opposing stories about him. And it's one of those things again, where it's like, well, the truth is in there somewhere, but it's kind of up to you, the reader or you as a person in real life to decide what is the true story and what do you believe? Or how the truth is really hard and good people do bad things Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. vice versa. And people do bad things thinking they're for good reasons. Exactly. Which doesn't make them good things or good people because it's it's just complicated. It absolutely is. This gets me to another thing that I think is really important is the Dara and Ali. I The novel sets them up as foils for one another. And they both and different points of the book say I was just following orders mm-hmm. or something to that effect. Right. Dara is the reason he was... Um, exiled was because he followed the orders of the Nahids and mm-hmm. did the whole Kwaizi massacre. Right. And so he was exiled and that's when he was enslaved by the Ifrit. And then Ali is following his father's orders and killing Shafits indiscriminately, right. putting them in the boat or whatever. And then the boat melts and then he has to cut off the person's head. And he has this, I was just following orders right. type reaction. Mm-hmm. But Ali is doing something about right. it that's very different than how Dada did it that's an important distinction like Ali realizes that what he's doing is wrong like this is not like what we're doing to the Shafi like how I'm just following what I'm supposed to be doing isn't okay and so I think we see him struggling with that 
dilemma of whether to stay in line and maybe possibly be the right hand of Mutineer in the future and maybe make a change then or start a change now. We don't really see that with Dara. This just came to my came to mind that we see Ali getting possessed, possibly enslaved mm-hmm. by the Marids, though, not mm-hmm. by the Afrits. And he's exiled. Right. Also, mm-hmm. after following orders. Yeah. So this is there's more of a. I guess super positioning of Dara and Ali than I was right. than I even noticed before we started having this conversation, mm-hmm. which is why I love doing this podcast. It's so <laughs> fun to talk about books. And I I do want to mention that there's this idea that um European intellectual and Enzo Traverso came up with called technological responsibility. And it's about how this is gonna get a little Kelly E for a minute. A little <laughs> rabbit holy for a minute. <laughs> I can put um, a link to stuff in the show notes about this. But the whole idea of technological responsibility, if I remember correctly, it was several years ago when I learned this in seminar, but it's about, um, and so Traverso specifically talks about it in relationship to what he calls the European Civil War, which is his concept for um, the Spanish Civil War and then eventually World War II and the Holocaust. And this idea of technological responsibility is that there's always someone up the chain that you can pass off um, I guess, culpability too. So that if you're just following orders, I mean, where does that stop? Where does Mm -hmm. the buck stop? If you can always keep passing it to people above you. Um, And then Traverso's point is the the existence of a thing like technological responsibility is what enables these sorts of um, what he calls cold violence, which is really systematic, um, like pre- um, what am I thinking of premeditated murder that happens in like the Holocaust? Cause mm-hmm. it was an actual system, so much infrastructure, very thought out. It was planned. It was architected. Right. And that sort of is cold, unfeeling. He calls it cold violence versus this thing called hot violence, which is what in his conception, um, just a bunch of, I don't know, just like very emotion, very like a reactionary, lot, exactly carnal, passionate kind of what, violence used to be like Mm -hmm. and then with the holocaust is like a shift right so anyway i just thought that the whole technological responsibility thing that i was just following orders i that just came into my mind i was like this seems really relevant for both dara and ali show us your house pride we're interrupting the deep cuts Maybe in honor of Pride Month, also in honor of how much we love Harry Potter. (laughs) Which character belongs to which Hogwarts house? We disagree. (laughs) So let us know what you think by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. I'm going to let you start. Okay. Nahri. I would say Slitherclaw. This is maybe the one we agree on. Okay. She's really interested in learning and learning how to read so she can like gather information and she wants to read books and she's like flying through books. But she's also like a con artist and a thief and really, I think, probably has her own interests at the center of the story. Mm-hmm. I was getting some very Kaz Breckery vibes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Super smart. Less kind, violent. <laughs> less violent, but like ruthless in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. In like a perhaps a more graceful, subtle way. Well, in kind of like a steal from the rich, give to the poor kind of way. Yeah, like, I was very anti-capitalist. Yeah. Very into that. And I was like, yes, do that. Yes, obviously. <laughs> Robin Hoodie. Yes. And I agree with you. And I like that this is almost like a little bit of like a Slytherin 
having to be ambitious to fucking survive. Right. Because you don't have parents, you're not connected to wealth in a familial sense, Mm -hmm. or she wasn't when she, you know, was growing up in the human world. She's a woman living on her own. Yeah, no access to resources in the 18th century, which was, you know, as far as women's rights, not awesome. (laughs) And... Um, as far as being magical, being ostracized, if anyone found her out, there mm-hmm. could there would be probably a large backlash of her being a witch because of this mistrust of the occult and all that stuff. Right. So this idea that the ambition of Slitherclaw or of Slytherin maybe not being a bad thing all the time. Right. Dara. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I think he's a Gryffindor. And this is going to be polemical for me. Be- I It might get polemical, depending on how many people actually listen to this or care about this. <laughs> is I find Dada like a Gryffindor, but in an annoying Poe Dameron kind of way. Like, I'm going to go in and blow everything up. And I don't really care about the consequences. I'm so brave. I can use a Zulfikar. I'm really wonderful. So here's me. And I'm doing all the things. It's almost like the selfish side of the Gryffindor courage. Right. First of all, I never thought of Poe Dameron as being like a little shit, basically. He's such a shit. Oh, I love him. It's Oscar uh, Isaacs, really, but. Oh, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> so hot. So hot. But like, yeah. No to that character. Yeah, yeah. Mm, I would put Dara as a Slytherin. <laughs> Okay. So self-interested and so like unconcerned with the needs of other people. He's cunning. He's like lying to Navi about everything. Like lies of omission. Like he wouldn't even say he was lying because he just didn't tell her. But like freaking know? Harry Potter did that the entire series. What? No. He was like following Malfoy and not tell it oh. and like they knew he that. was following Malfoy I don't know he gets like obsessed about him with himself and his own way of thinking yeah. and doesn't want to take other people's opinions but like he has his friends and like close people who are actually close to him where I feel like Slytherins are always like well Dada did but they were all killed by Zadie Alcatani and their forces Just his family yeah but, and, the, and he's like <laughs> such a Slytherin thing to be obsessed with their family and their blood status and stuff oh that's a good point that's a very good point. Slither door? Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Ali? I don't know if this already exists. I'm sure it does on the internet. I put him as Ravenpuff because he's very loyal to ideals. He's conflicted about them, right? And he's not always 100% following them all the time. But I think that's part of his journey. Right. The like, character arc of, the, of Ali. And Ravenclaw because he's such a f- nerd. Yes. That's my take. What do you think? It's hard because I kind of agree. I think you're right. But I also like <laughs> want to put him in Slytherin. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where's your nuance? <laughs> you just don't want everyone to be in Slytherin, and that's fine. I just think they're all a bunch of Slytherins only worried about themselves. And so whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with Slytherins. Also, let me put that out there. I know I'm probably a Slytherin at heart, even though I want to say I'm Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. We contain multitudes. Yeah. I contain all of them. Probably. We sort too soon. I don't know how Hufflepuff you are. (laughs) (laughs) That remains to be seen. Just and loyal. I'm a Libra. That's true. That'll be a little bit Hufflepuff, right? I'm a Libra rising. There you go. I'm Cancer rising. (laughs) Happy Cancer season tomorrow. It's June 21st when we're recording this. Yeah. 
Happy solstice. Happy solstice, <laughs> witches. Okay, back to what we were actually talking Sorry. about. Muntanir. Muntanir for me is a Slytherin. Same, just straight up Slytherin. But in an out of alignment way. It's hard because I feel like Slytherins get like such a bad rep for being like always the evil ones. So I feel like almost a little bad making him a Slytherin because I feel like he's going to be a bad guy in the next book. We put everyone as Slytherin, so I don't feel like we're being... I put everyone as Slytherin. Unduly. But I put Slytherclaw, Slytherdor. That's true. true. Yeah. So I think they're all a bunch of Slytherins. I think that's fine. (laughs) Okay. Back to the deep cuts. Because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. This is our segment about powers and bodies and how they relate. Race to start off with this time. Always. <laughs> Always. The Tanzim, to me, came off as this Black Panther-esque collective advocating for the rights of a specific group. In this case, the Shafit. They're about education, about food, about human rights, but also about arming themselves and protecting each other and like friggin diversity of tactics and by any means necessary exactly (laughs) doing what needs to be done yeah with them collect as soon as they started like collecting weapons and they're like feeding the poor and like educating people i'm like oh yeah black panthers for sure because we should say that the shafit aren't allowed to carry weapons correct it's illegal that's how gun control started exactly that's a really good point right because white people didn't want black people to have guns yeah so they instilled gun control Mm. and now they're like no we don't want it (laughs) and they're like but do, at the same but time, <laughs> at the same time, arms deal with Saudi yeah, Arabia. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Go Tanzim. I'm all for it. I think it's really cool that Chakraborty gave protagonism and visibility to this type of activism right. and agitation. Yeah. It's hard at the same time. I'm like, please don't hurt Ali. <laughs> I guess he's helping them. So it's like, fine. He'll be fine. It's a, it's a sort of like break the wheel type moment there was a lot of that revolutionary consciousness in this novel which is like spoiler alert probably one of the reasons why I, why i loved it of course and that probably doesn't surprise anyone in this room no by that i mean laney who is sleeping and jesse yeah but also interesting because at the like at the turn of the story a little bit ali is like upset because the tanzim are taking up arms like they're collecting weapons so he's like i'm willing to help with your revolution to a point it was almost like this very like white civility mm-hmm. discourse you know mm-hmm. where it's like but why can't you just be nonviolent? Right, like yeah. i don't like the tone you're using yeah, i don't know i don't approve of the tactics you're using and it's like okay good for you but we don't care we're literally dying well and it's hard too because i'm like you don't approve of any tactics if you're being honest, because like you can't kneel for the national anthem, you can't throw up a black power sign, like we can't take up arms, like nothing would be okay. There is no right way for us to protest. So exactly, like, fuck off. <laughs> yes, that's such funny. a mood. <laughs> such a mood. Such a mood. <laughs> There's a uh, Shafit trafficking. I think that counts as human trafficking. Human I trafficking. Human. I think it's a parallel to human trafficking yeah, for sure. We see this when Ali goes to the inn and he's with, what's his name? Oh, characters. It is, I think, Anas. Anas, yes. And, and Hunan. Then... Hanun. Oh, it starts with an H. Yeah. And there's two O's in there. That's all I remember. The guy 
who eventually comes and stabs and tries yeah. to kill Ali at the end. Yes. Yeah. We see that they're posing for the Deva slaver. They're yeah. posing as full-blooded jinn with like a Shafit servant. Yes, because um, Hanun can shapeshift. That's right. And so they're going in. It's like a sting operation, yeah. essentially, to get back the Shafit children that are being human trafficked. And so the Shafit reproduce faster and more easily than the jinn do. This means that there's a demand for Shafit children among full-blooded jinn partners right and families for me this very obviously explicitly overtly dovetails into the serious and incredibly important and often heated topic of adoption right and who is entitled to whose children it's because you have certain types of power or privilege financial racial whatever and that doesn't necessarily entitle you to other people's children or it shouldn't right and under our current systems it does you can Mm -hmm. buy kids yeah like what does it mean to take a kid out of their their cultural setting to a new one without ever giving them access to their culture. Right. Or the idea that, I don't know if you're going to pay the, however many tens of thousands of dollars it is for an international or a private adoption or even for an adoption within the public system. Mm -hmm. But in theory, you care about the kids well-being, but that money could also be used for family preservation. So I think this is an incredibly complicated issue. I'll link to some Instagram accounts that I've been learning from Changing Adoption, Adoption 365, and um, also No White Saviors talks about this specifically for in, for transracial and international adoptions. So much to learn about. I'm not the person to be really opining on these matters, but I'm just saying that the novel brings this up and it's a discussion that's happening and we need to keep learning. Yeah. Let me say as someone who maybe can speak to this a little bit, having grown up in like a mixed race household, (laughs) I can imagine this would be really difficult for the kids. Like very difficult. Like a transracial adoption would be hard in that you definitely are going to lose access to your culture. Um, And I say that as someone who grew up in a mixed race household until I was in just a white household. And you really do lose a connection to whatever your POC half. If the white person is not willing to put in the work. I read a memoir recently called all you can ever know by Nicole Chung. And she's a transracial adoptee who is Korean. I highly recommend that book. It was a really important view of one like microcosmic experience of transracial adoption. There are also lots of issues surrounding what kind of gin you are, which seems to be apparent from looking at a person. There's an obvious disdain for those who marry into other tribes, um, and the Shafit, who are human and gin, are considered the lowest part of society, which is partly a class issue as well, obviously. It's a caste system, right? So where race and class are very... Intersectional. <laughs> in- intertwined, <laughs> enmeshed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think that the point you bring up about the intermarriage tribal intermarriage is almost like this like miscegenation type races didn't used to be a thing before Suleiman and now they are and so now they matter right social construct exactly (laughs) social construct with infects and affects as in like emotions it's a really important point and we see Ali and Zainab getting some flack and some pushback or having some imposter syndrome and Mm -hmm. inner issues around not being fully one or the other. Right. Ayanle. I think Zainab's Ayan, both Ayanle and Gaziri. Both of them are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Muntadir, I think, is only Gaziri. I think so. Yeah. Because he had a different mom. Yes. Okay. Half siblings. I didn't think about how, like, the oh, yeah. 
difficulties there of what it means to have half siblings. It's a little bit more of a blended family dynamic. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you really see like the issues that come up with being half siblings as much in this story as you might in a different story. We also see, and I think maybe this is what reminded me so much of all like the Slytherin stuff was a lot of pure blood versus mixing of blood, dirty blood kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We see this specifically because we get a POV chapters from Ali, Mm -hmm. but I think this inner turmoil is really important for him. And so especially because he wasn't allowed to see his mom, Mm -hmm. the swimming is seen as weird. He looks Ayanle because Mm -hmm. he's darker. Right. I mean, speaking about race, like how people are racialized, mm-hmm. there's a there's not too, too much description of skin colors that I noticed. Mm, everyone's everyone has brown skin. I know. It's amazing. I know. I was like, wow, this is really awesome. But I do think that there was there were some subtle distinctions that mm-hmm. I had to pay attention to that for Ali's character description, for example, because right. the Ayanli are from Eastern Africa around right. the headwaters of the Nile. And so he looks more like that, but he's got the lighter eyes of a of the Gaziri or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I have that wrong. No, I think I that's, think that's right. correct. Yeah. But then he's like culturally more tied to the Gaziri because of how he was socialized right. and growing up in the Citadel. Exactly. And like with the Zulfikar and how he's trying to just impress his dad and be Ka'ed and that stuff. Very Anon sort of vibes for me from Children yeah, of Blood and Bone. For sure. I just think that that dynamic was really well explored there weren't any easy answers given because there shocker <laughs> aren't any easy answers right and it's kind of nice because we for both of our POZ, povs for nahri and ali we get two people who are considered two of something like yeah they're both jinn and human they're amgaziri and ayanle um so it was kind of interesting to see that dynamic play out throughout the story and how they're treated by different people and i think nahri in the beginning is treated worse than she is in the end because the king just says oh it's a curse she's actually a pure blood but it it gives that pure bloodedness a higher status than what it means to be like mixed Mm -hmm. so yeah we have different kinds of mixing we have full-blooded jinn but mixed tribes between the jinn which is ali and then we have shafi which is not full-blooded jinn right they're basically biracial yeah i would say we have biraciality in both ways yeah the tribes is hard because it's like the tribes within the jinn and then... Because they are racialized differently. Right. Yeah, exactly. But then we have this other like level of racialization mm-hmm. happening between jinn, human, and shafi. Right. And then also the mard and the peri. Right, exactly. So it's quite confusing and I didn't really think about it that m- I think I didn't think about it that much in the book because I'm black and not Middle Eastern. So I'm like, I don't know what comes of that. Like what is the fe- what are the feelings there when it is like... Middle Eastern and white, maybe what that means to them as opposed to being like black and white. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for the rest of the series because mm-hmm. I think there's so much potential to get into these dynamics even more by seeing introduced to new characters who are from different Jin right. tribes and maybe we're even traveling to different parts mm-hmm. of the world. It's going to be really awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to explore how rich and diverse and beautiful and expansive these cultures are yeah okay so back to race in the not so wonderful way is that there are racial slurs depending on that correspond to like the jinn tribe and to the stereotypes associated with them mm-hmm. so the gaziri are called sandflies pejoratively the ayan like crocodiles because there was some sort of crocodile worship or something something about their and their love of water which i guess if they're from like near the Nile the Nile has crocodiles so that Mm -hmm. 
makes sense. Yeah. Like it doesn't, but it does. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the Deva are called fire worshipers, but right. really that's supposed to be very pejorative. But also Jin is pejorative to the Deva as well because mm. they don't consider themselves like they consider themselves different. They're kind of in There's... denial about the fact that they're, they've been separated into tribes and they're one of the Jin tribes. Yeah, exactly. So for them, like, Dara is like always upset when he gets called a djinn and it's like but you are <laughs> it's almost like this uh, clinging I don't, it reminds me of like maybe we'll edit this out okay we'll see how this goes okay. I'm spitballing here so I might be wrong and feel free to hold me accountable if I am <laughs> okay but this this sort of going back to that nostalgia type rhetoric that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier this almost like obsession like southern mm-hmm. white obsession with confederacy right. and passed in that way and identifying that way and be like yeah we never i don't know almost in the way that like the southerners confederate loving southerners hold on to the fact that they're like well the civil war wasn't about slavery it was about states, states rights states rights Ugh. but it's like it's the states rights to have slaves it's like <laughs> It's mm-hmm. about slavery. It's about the economy, okay? Based on who? Yeah, who yeah. was valued and not? Yeah, you know, exactly. Under that economic system. Side note, I'm I started the podcast White Lies. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Okay, I recommend. It's two white NPR journalists who went through and spent several years um, uncovering. It's like a true crime podcast mm-hmm. about the death of um, a Unitarian minister who went to Selma and he was killed mm. by. He's a white Unitarian minister from Boston who was killed by white segregationists and racists in um selma when he went down there to help with the civil rights movement right. um so it hadn't been solved or anything like that so it's really interesting and they talk about they specifically address this they are both from alabama mm-hmm. and so they they talk about this sort of voluntary amnesia yet at the same time very paradoxically putting the past on a pedestal yeah for sure as someone from the south like confederate flags on beach towels on bathing suits just everywhere i mean you saw when we were in florida like people wearing confederate flag bandanas and it's like kind of just a reminder of like just stay away from those people like for me personally as a person of color i'm Mm. like don't want anything to do with that so which which flag mississippi still has the confederate flag in the corner of their larger state flag yeah and they also forget that that's like you know what happened was treason so like whatever (laughs) like i said voluntary amnesia about about convenient things yeah inconvenient things i should say yeah but back to dara it also reminds me of um people who i've seen a couple of episodes of like those talk shows which i'm not a fan of where they confront people who are white passing kind of Mm. and how they will like i'm not a person of color i am white so don't call me that thing it reminds me of that a little bit wait i'm confused so the person that they're being that's interviewed is white or is white passing? White passing. And they want to be white. Mm-hmm. Or they are white. They consider themselves white. They consider themselves white. But like t- to the point of denial of the part of them that is not white. Or like my mom who put I was white on my forms in elementary school. Even though when you look at me, I am obviously mm. not. <laughs> not. <laughs> what are you? Uh, yeah. My that. favorite question. <laughs> oh, my favorite question. Say what you mean. Yeah. Racist. I know. I know. Just ask. I actually don't even care that much at this point in my life. So I'm like, it's fine. Where are you from? <laughs> but where are you from? Really? <laughs> I know. People don't like it when I'm like, I'm from Virginia. <laughs> My brother was dating someone who's not white, and she met my Oma, who's 96, white woman. Yeah. And Oma asked me, 
luckily didn't ask this other person where they were from and i was like um utah i think they were born in utah but they live in colorado Uh or something like that and so i said that and then my oma was like no but where is she from really (laughs) it's like oh my god racism rears its ugly head unsurprisingly because we live we are socialized in a racist society so the work is always there i saw it happen to one of my students it was like the funniest interaction because it was a black person asking another black person where they're from and my student has a little bit of a non-american accent so he said he was from colorado and the other person who is also poc was like but where are you from actually like where are your parents from and i was like oh Oh. interesting Hmm, internalized racism and we don't see that dynamic like i don't know that doesn't get a lot of visibility right no but my student it has like a bit of an accent he is very dark and so i guess she just assumed he must be from somewhere else but he's born and raised in colorado so like what else is he supposed to say that's a good point yeah so you just just don't just when people say where they're from just take them at their word exactly <laughs> that's why when my oma asked me a second time where she was from really i said utah and colorado yeah yeah because that's the answer <laughs> to that question <laughs> yeah moving to class on page 62, Anas, who is the sheik who is working with the Tanzim and gets killed at the beginning of the book, he says, if the Shafit were afforded equal protection, we wouldn't be forced to take the law into our own hands. And I really like this because there's a lot of class and race issues going on and that are at play in the story. But I really like this as like a way to show that you have to use any means necessary. Yeah. And this definitely brings up for me that the law doesn't equal morality and this sort of, I think it was an Angela Davis quote that I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because the, we should mention that, or I guess reiterate that the Shafi are economically disadvantaged mm-hmm. under the system. We see them as servants. All of the servants are Shafi almost exclusively when we see them in the palace mm-hmm. and they are being enslaved like human trafficking looked down upon don't have the same rights they don't get the same medical care Mm -hmm. when we we see those scenes in the orphanage when the kid is coughing Mm -hmm. or whatever and then ali's talking about the treasury overflowing like we see these wealth disparities that go along racial and class lines yeah for sure This isn't quite as like groundbreaking, I guess, but the different quarters of Devabad correspond to the different Jin tribes, aka one aspect of this racialization that's going on in the novel. And these quarters receive different monetary resources and support from the, I don't know, Katani's slash ruling whoever's in charge, right? Mm -hmm. This just reminds me of redlining and how people are economically disadvantaged because of predatory lending based on race and how the system race and class and like economic injustice and racial injustice are very very intertwined right like when you think about how like some school districts it's based on the housing prices like what resources like how much money goes to schools and so that really keeps certain school districts in a state of poverty where others are like you know with white flight have all the resources There's a lot of dramatization, at least in the beginning, of palace excess when Mm -hmm. Nari first comes because she's used to eating the same thing over and over again because she's living in poverty. 
and trying to like bootstrap herself out mm-hmm. specifically with food we see this and this reminded me very much about Feyre mm-hmm. when she goes to Tamlin's right when, when she goes to the spring court and sees the food everywhere and everyone is so rich and everyone's wearing so many jewels and everything's so expensive but like why right and like food's laid out that no one's eating as the Shafit are like dying yeah exactly so much wealth and equity and inequality right for sure segue because our podcast is you know in dialogue with the contemporary political moment the new york times interviewed a bunch of the different democratic presidential candidates for 2020 and i think they interviewed 20 of them not biden interestingly (laughs) but there are short films where you can see their responses to a lot of different questions some of which are polemical like about israel and um should anyone be able in an ideal world would anyone own a handgun and then there was one question is it moral or is it ethical or is it should anyone allowed to be a billionaire Oh, interesting. There were some more radical answers than I was expecting about how it's like unethical to be a billionaire. And I'm like, thank you. Hmm. This should be a mainstream political opinion. Right. It can be kind of difficult because the people who we allow to be in power in this country have to be over a certain age. So like it's mostly old white dudes Mm -hmm. is what it ends up being. Um, and I wonder why. I know. Could I know. it be a 200 year head start to quote Martin Luther King? I know, right? But I am hopeful that in the future and maybe in the near future that we will see um, what are seen as more radical ideas coming out of politics as people our age start to get older. And we should mention leftist. Yeah. Because there's also (laughs) radicalization on the right that we are not down with. No. But if you thought that, then you should probably re-listen to a shit ton of episodes. Yeah. Or like, we need to change our messaging because I know. Yeah. Yeah. Gender. Let's talk about gender. And sexuality. It's Yeah. It's kind of coming up in this section, I think. Yeah. Masculine identified jinn hold power in Devabad. Almost exclusively. Almost exclusively. Do you agree? I agree. Okay. With the exception that the Nahid in charge can be male or female. We see that with uh, who might be... Maniza? Yes. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I saw her name like three times and I was like, I don't remember what it is. That's the awesome the part of the of listening. Audio. Yeah, yeah, the audio book. But we see how this is complicated when the king attempts to force a marriage between Nahri and Muntanir. I do kind of wonder, would he have done the same if the Nahid had been male? What do you think? This is an excellent question. I really like that you asked it because it was surfacing assumptions that I had made while I was reading. Mm -hmm. I got the feeling, and this could just be my misreading, that the society is largely heteronormative. So I would assume no. Right. Because we don't see the exception of something we'll talk about later in the shipwreck section with like the Jamshid Muntadir dynamic. We don't see non-hetero couplings. Mm -mm. But I I do kind of wonder like if Nahri... Or actually, I guess a better case to make is if the king finds out that Jamshid is Nahid, would he try and marry him to his daughter? And I think that's where we Instead will... of to Muntadir. Oh, yeah. Because like Muntadir and Jamshid are in love. Yes. I ship them so hard. I'm like, spoiler for the shipwreck section. Yeah. I, I tweeted some um, fan art of the two of them today. Oh my actually. gosh. Um, we definitely linked to that in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. So I think that if he finds out that Jamshid is... Nahid, he will try and marry Jamshid to his daughter. Zainab. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, hence heteronormativity. Yeah. Which, no thank you. Yeah. Thank you, next. 
we also get kind of gendered language in this story in that I don't actually know anything about Arabic at all. So I don't know which words in this story were made up by the author and which ones were Arabic or some other form of language. But like the Nahid, it's the Nahid or the Nahida. So we kind of get kind of similar to Spanish where things have male or female. That's a good point. And all the, with the different titles mm-hmm. also, that's like another layer of nuance, not right. just to the gender, like the titles are different, you mm-hmm. know, Amir. Yeah. Muntadir. Amir is crown prince, I yes. think, right? Yeah, that's what it says, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, the Banu Nahida mm-hmm. versus just the Nahida. I don't know what Banu means. Oh, like, I think it has a different name. The, the beginning is a different as well. It's like Banu Nahida. I know, but sometimes they call her Nahida. Oh, yeah, Or Banu yeah. Nahida. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite sure why. And that's just my own ignorance. Yeah. Like, I need to friggin' learn some more about non-romance languages. That is not my wheelhouse. And definitely one of the spots where I can do better. Yeah. Well, maybe we should add it in the show notes if we um, can look up. Because I don't, I don't know if Arabic is gendered in that same way like Spanish. A, you can look up a primer. Yeah. The internet exists. The so internet we can exists. learn about it. <laughs> we get sex workers in this story. We do. Only women sex workers as far as I recall. I thought I got the mention. I maybe I'm so just t- making that up. I think we got the mention in that... Um, of male sex workers. I should finish my sentence. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. I assumed the rest of your sentence, so... <laughs> this is a, an audio medium podcasting, so I want to... Maybe yeah. best practices to finish what I'm trying to say. Yeah. We get the impression that maybe the sex worker that is like in love with Muntanir, that if, if Ali has preferences other than women, she can accommodate that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Um, yep. But... Yeah, sex work is work. This is a sex positive podcast. So I thought that was cool because they didn't. They also, she made the point to say they were not forced into it. It wasn't sex slavery. Right. It was a choice that they had made. Mm-hmm. She had a list 20 people long of people who wanted to work there. So good for them. And it seemed to be sex workers were in charge of themselves. It didn't seem to be like Johns or Pimps. No. Like that sort of dynamic going mm-hmm. on. No little finger behind the scenes. Yeah exploiting all of their labor and getting money from them yeah they yeah definitely i think there was the main person who was in charge whose name i don't remember who was a woman Mm -hmm. and the women seemed to be able to decide what they wanted to do or not do so hell yeah yeah it's the way to go along the same lines the i think this does go with gender a lot of time but also sex and but i want to be you know careful of transness and mm-hmm. non-binariness and don't want to fall into cisnormativity but nari feels this pressure to procreate and that's put on her by dara by nisreen i think i think so i think there's just the implication right because she's the last nahid supposedly the last of her lineage or they thought they were all extinct and then here comes nari that this burden falls heavily on this falls on her that's why Dada, when she basically proposes to him, yeah, and he's like, "Nope, I can't. I'm shooting blanks, basically." <laughs> and, I mean, that is what he said, basically. I mean, yeah, that's what he was saying. He's like, "I don't have blood, so therefore, dot dot dot, <laughs> dot dot dot." But dot dot dot, maybe that's not true. Yeah, I don't. Who knows? I mean, knows? they could have found out. <laughs> yeah, they could have. Tr- yeah. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, this reminded me of Rin from the Poppy War mm-hmm. and how she chooses to have, like, a hysterectomy, essentially, Basically, like, abortificant yeah. or, like, hysterectomificant. <laughs> anyway, about how being the last of your lineage. And so then, are you going to procreate or not? It's always the question hangs in the air specifically for women identified 
characters. Right. And that's not to say it couldn't be the case for people with uteruses who don't identify as women. It totally could. But I'm just noticing this. This is getting, I guess, trend or trope or I don't know, narrative story. All of the words. Yeah. Kind of floated to the surface for me. Yeah. And I think partly because for people our age and probably younger, so millennials and younger. (laughs) Gen Z. Yeah. We see you, Gen Z. Yeah. A lot of us are making the decision not to have children. So we are seeing this pressure put on us by families and older people who assume because it has been the norm for so long that that is what we will continue to want to do. Medical practitioners. Yeah. Medical practitioners can fuck off. I don't want kids. (laughs) Do you want to explain that? Yeah, no, it's fine. I had a doctor who assumed I wanted children and also assumed when I said I didn't that I would change my mind. That was her response to me saying I did not want children. Then she say something like, well, when you change your mind, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck off. I don't want kids. I'm almost 30. I think I know. <laughs> also, I don't want them. So I think we will see this maybe more if Nari and Muntanir do get married. There will be more pressure on him as well. Are they going to have sex? He hates her. Yeah. She did this for to money. keep herself safe and, and for safety, money. Like yeah. for her, you know? Yeah. Resources. Yeah. Probably part of the reason... Like, we don't know if homosexuality is acceptable in this um, society. It doesn't seem to be, mm-hmm. but it could be one of the reasons um, Muntanir is not allowed to be with Jamshid because there would be no children from that. Right. Oh, that's a good point because it has to re. Mm. Yeah. Those royals, they have some high standards on having kids. But we might see the story end. Fingers crossed with Jamshid and Muntanir together and Ali and Nari together. And then they could have kids if Nari and Ali want that. And if they don't want that. Also fine. That's awesome. They can just like go be Ravenclaws together in the library (laughs) and talk about like economic policy. (laughs) Such a weird thing to be like, I want to study economics. I mean, I don't get it because I was an English major. Maybe some of you listening to this studied economics and good for you. I do not have the math skills. <laughs> I didn't get as much into economics until I started learning about capitalism and labor yeah. organizing. Yeah. And even but, then, I'm like, this stuff is fucking depressing to me and I don't <laughs> want to read about it anymore. Yes. And yes. Very <laughs> depressing. On my list is Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Frederici that talks about how capitalism requires reproduction. And that's how like feminized labor doesn't have value. Right. And neither does reproduction on the in the like, capitalist sense. Like you don't get paid to stay home and have kids, you know? Right. Like well that's the thing. Like you and me, they call us dinks, dual income, no kids. Yep. Like how they say we're like ruining the economy or whatever. But I'm also like, I can travel when I want. I can do what I want with my money. Like I don't have to worry about my resources being tied up in another person. I don't care that I'm killing the napkin industry. I really don't <laughs> care. No, I don't care. I will take cats, not kids. <laughs> ability and illness i wanted to throw this in a little bit because navri's a healer mm-hmm. and the nahids are healers and this seemed important to me i loved how the jinn ailments in devabad are so bizarre it was like kind of whimsical right alice in wonderland s totally kind of? totally whimsical but also sinister and been weird and troubling and a little bit violent and yeah. unexpected like the the person who's like turning into a bird or the person who's like gradually disappearing Turning to ashes yeah yeah like smoking like, you remember how like in the movie voldemort like just turns to ashes and that's how they do his death which was terrible and whoever did that that was not not cool they were probably just following orders oh, quote unquote yeah right whatever anyways it reminded me of that, like slowly just turning to ashes. There's 
possessions. Yeah. You know, but not in like a, we have to exorcise this in a really, you know, troubling. But kind of in the beginning. Christian-y almost. way. Yeah, yeah. But in the beginning at the czar. That's true. Where I think the character's name is Bashima is mm-hmm. possessed by a jinn or not jinn and ifrit and they can't get it out so they just have to kill her i got the impression that nari brought that ifrit by doing magic oh it was attracted to her and so but she wasn't originally possessed by an ifrit oh i see I, this might be my a misinterpretation okay. on my part i interpreted it the opposite way that she was already possessed and nari like brought it up more oh so i yeah i interpreted as that nari was just doing a con yeah of course (laughs) and it turned into a be careful what you wish for sort of situation and actually summoned that yavahush yeah and then the use of that magic and maybe the presence of dara brought the effort Mm. like Mm -hmm. woke them up hence with like the ghouls and stuff going on too yeah that makes more sense actually i don't know if that could be a misreading i don't know let us know if you read it differently. Yeah. Please help. <laughs> anyway, about the ailments. I just thought it was fun to learn new things. Like you really cool. like you were saying at the beginning in the initial reactions. Yeah, it was really cool. Hashtag Ravenclaw forever. Another aspect that I wanted to bring up that falls under ability and illness is, I guess, among the jinn tribes in Devabad, there's this, I guess, common knowledge that enslavement, if a jinn is enslaved for a certain period of time, they will inevitably, quote, go mad or go crazy. Mm-hmm. I guess I just wanted to put this on the table, that there was a correlation or a causal relationship, at least in this novel, between enslavement and mental illness, PTSD. And I think that sort of makes me think about conversations that are happening now about inherited trauma, generational trauma, Mm -hmm. questions about reparations, which are happening right now. Yes, this is a pro-reparations podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And some of that PTSD and mental illness might also come from the fact that the gin slaves seem to kill their human masters. So maybe some trauma going on with like almost forced violence and what the like slave masters are asking them to do magically i think that this is a case like they literally have to follow Mm -hmm. orders if they wish something and we see this happen with nari at the end when she wishes for for dara to survive and so then turns out he was lying when he said he was freed or something or did he think he was free i really don't understand what was going on with dara but i think we're gonna get him back because um maniza yeah but also the katanis Mm -hmm. have his like thing you know the thing his relic yeah that's what it's called his relic they have his relic so i'm like something's going on there there's no reason to bring it up and then never talk about it again because this isn't game of thrones (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is much better written than that yeah Um, so i have a feeling that'll come back into play totally i feel like that might be when ali and nahri kind of join forces come Mm -hmm. back together and decide to like break the wheel yeah yeah maybe they'll bring dara back Are you ready to talk about religion? Let's talk about religion. Okay. I guess I should start by saying we're going to talk about this carefully because I'm not part of any religion and not any of the ones in this book. If anything, I'm witchy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like maybe the opposite. (laughs) It's magical, but not from this tradition. Yeah, exactly. So in the beginning of the book, we're in Cairo and we see that people of other faiths are not expressly welcome. Other faiths besides Islam. Yes. 
Although I don't think they ever expressly say Islam. No, I don't think they do. I think you're right about that. And that there are calls to prayer and prayer rugs. So it's like implied. Yeah. And I think even at one point we hear God called Allah. So we have inferred to them. (laughs) Yeah. But Yaqib, who worked in the apothecary with Nahri, is Jewish. And so rumors are spread about him. And he's not really welcome in, in their town. Talking about Judaism in relation to ethnicity and race is always mm-hmm. so complicated. Right. And, and like, I think the same can be say, said about Islam. Like Absolutely. It's the culture and race and ethnicity. religion. Yeah, they're all tied up so much in those faiths, although not with our author. <laughs> yeah, so. which we'll talk about later. Yeah. That's, inter- that's an interesting point. I know that there's like, I know in Judaism, there's the history of a big diasporic the reality of being part of a diaspora mm-hmm. and this, you know, and stories of exile. Yeah, I think even Yaqib is like exiled from where he was before. And that's why he had to like no one knows why he had to leave where he was before. Right. There's so much nuance going on in this novel. I, I just the more I talk about it, the more I like it. I know. We also see that premarital sex is bad. For women. <laughs> yeah. Men and women shouldn't be left alone together. The king threatens to expose Nahri as having a relationship with either Ali or Dara. I don't remember which. Maybe both. Well, because Nahri is called the Scourge's whore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I remember the rumors that Ali wasn't aware they were happening for a while mm-hmm. of him supposedly oh. having, like, fucking in the library. Fucking the right. Nahid in the library. Didn't Muntadir say that to him? Probably, but I don't know if he's lying because he was all pissy at the end anyway. Yeah, yeah. So Muntadir obviously has beef with Nari and the Nahids, right? And subsequently Ali in the end. But we see that premarital sex is used against women and not Mm -hmm. men. And that's Ghassan's point at the end when he threatens Nari with that. Yeah, because he's like, it won't matter for Ali or Jara or Muntanir. And how we see all the different men who are at the... um, Brothel. Brothel, thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. And Gassan specifically says this is different for women than yeah, it is for men. He does. And I like that it was explicitly addressed. Yeah, for sure. As far as with religion, I don't know very much about modesty culture or fashion or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I know that sex is... That like inter... What do you mean? Hetero <laughs> relationships <laughs> okay, are... Um, there are like rules on that right. in a lot of different religions, mm-hmm. not just Islam. I'm thinking like puritanical Christianity, all that As stuff. Someone like everywhere. who was like part of a Orthodox evangelical Judaism. church, yeah. like bathing suits hat couldn't be bikinis, couldn't no skin sh- like at the beach, like no mm-hmm. bikinis, your stomach had to be covered, no yeah. premarital sex, like all that stuff. So this sort of modesty culture isn't that it's something that I think Islam gets from the West demonized for. Mm -hmm. And that's completely ridiculous because we have those traditions and those sorts of ideas in Christianity too. Especially when you think about the differences in the, what is expected of men and women. Like, like I was just saying that double standard exists here too. I was expected to wear a full bathing suit, but the, the boys are walking around with just swimming trunks on and that was Mm -hmm. fine. I'm glad that we're putting this into like our power and bodies yeah. because the, I, I think that religion has to deal with that. Yeah. And it's a choice that we make to be religious or not also. Right. So like for some people. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that it's not a choice all the time. Yeah. Well, if you, if you have a choice, it's your choice to make and mm-hmm. like you do you, I don't care. Uh-huh. 
finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. So we mentioned this briefly, or it insinuated, but polyamory being accepted for men because Mm -hmm. they can go to brothels, they can have a bunch of different partners. Wives. Multiple wives. wives. Multiple wives, yeah. Or wives and concubines, which I'm like, what is the difference? What does it matter at that Mm -hmm. point? Exactly. And I think there was an implication that Maniza was Gassan's lover, or maybe I am totally like making that up. I was like, is that why he's obsessed with her? Like, he's so happy that her daughter is back? Like, I'm afraid a little bit... (laughs) that Nauri is going to be his kid and that's going to like bring up a whole like incesty thing with mm, yeah. Ali and ugh, I hope not. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I hope not. No, but she has human blood. But are we sure he's even telling the truth? No. I don't believe him. But otherwise she would look like she wouldn't look like a human. I don't know. I don't know either. We don't know. I don't There's know. no way to know until we read the other books, I guess. Yeah. Until we do know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but polyamory, but only for the men. Not cool. No. But we saw that in other novels. We saw that with Cruel Prince, Wicked King, sort Isn't of thing. Isn't it always the case, though? Like, yes. men can do whatever they want, and the women have to follow the That's rules. some fucking bullshit. Not here for it. Although Nahri is like, nah, I'm going to eat the meat. I'm going to, I'm not going to wear my thing. Um, she's just like, I give zero fucks for now. Do you ship Nahri and Dada? No. <laughs> kind of hate him he's kind of a dick (laughs) he's a jace character which you don't approve of me saying and i disagree but it's fine nadia and dada i thought that there was some chemistry cool like i was here yeah he's hot go for it if you want to like do it in the cave or whatever like do your thing yeah in the beginning i was like yeah that seems fine but as we got farther along i was like nah like nahi and ali yeah same we're on the same ship this time we are on the same ship Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Let's hope the ship doesn't get sunk. Jamshid and Muntadir. I'm on that ship, too. (laughs) Even though Muntadir's a dick. The problem is I don't like Muntadir, so I don't really want him to be happy. But maybe he'll, like, come around once he realizes that Jamshid is a Nahid. Or once he just, like, takes secondary, you know, status. And Jamshid gets power or whatever. Although, no thanks to royalty. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm conflicted. Plus, I want Nahid on the th- or Nari on the throne. If we have point. a throne. Yeah, if there's a throne, I would like her to be on it. Sexy times? Nope. No sexy times. There was a fade out. Well, it wasn't really a fade out. It was an interrupted. Classic. Classic. Yeah. Interrupted. <laughs> interrupted sex scene. But I'm not sure anything was going to happen anyways. Dara seems like semi-religious maybe i'm just not sure that i mean it did seem like the devas remember they talked about how all of the deva women are covered up yeah and so when ali is in the tavern he's surprised when he sees the deva women uncovered Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so we get that that sort of dressing for modesty is part of deva religion too right and i suspect because that Dara is like super fucking old that he's gonna be there for like the modesty parts of it. That's the um his official age count. Yeah, is super fucking old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's his official age. <laughs> but I also didn't really miss the sexy times too much because there's so much else going on in this novel, which I like that this novel is making me be like, okay, Kelly, slow your roll. Doesn't have to be like Sarah J. Mouse levels in order for you to be 
um, all about Satisfied. this book. <laughs> Satisfied. Thank you. I appreciate that double entendre. That doesn't ca- that doesn't happen from you very often. Yeah. Although I was kind of like I wanted more to happen between Ali and Nahri, and I was, so I was kind of disappointed that more didn't happen between them. But I don't think it's been built up enough yet. No, they're friends. They're building an intellectual connection. It's a slow burn. Maybe I should be happy with them just being friends and like fine with that. I guess. Also that. Also we should call ourselves on. Yeah. Not everyone needs to be shipped. Yeah, and like you can have like male female relationships that don't involve sex or complicated feelings or whatever like that's or they can be complicated feelings but not romantic feelings yeah exactly i think i put complicated and romantic as the same thing (laughs) (laughs) they are often so telling often yeah now we're going to talk about writing style narration characterization plot structure and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called kill your darlings Basically, I'm going to gush. You do that. Chakraborty does an impressive job navigating such a large cast of characters, nuanced conflicts, and relationships between them. This is not easy to do. And also didn't seem to, like, uh, shit the bed as far as representation. Yes, I don't think so. Or orientalizing or exploitation or any, like, appropriation and stuff like that. And it might have helped that I know she spent a lot of time in Cairo specifically going to school there and and I think she lived there so I think it's a lot more helpful when you've like really immersed yourself into a culture to have a better under like I don't think you could ever have a full understanding of that culture but an understanding that will not be like so misrepresented but to me this is kind of hopeful that I guess prove for evidence that there's um a way to write outside of your own experience Mm -hmm. that is less harmful less appropriative more meaningful more nuanced more respectful so this might be a good time to point out that the author is white and converted to islam as a teenager i had some reservations about this book uh, because it is so important to get own voices stories but the issue is complicated in this context yeah and i i like that chakraborty's situation mm-hmm. and like history and then also these books makes us explicitly talk about the gray areas yeah because when i think of muslims i think of people who are from the middle east or are black <laughs> like in my head i'm like those are the those are the two types of muslim people <laughs> which is totally not true <laughs> totally not true um i'm not muslim or from the middle east um or super knowledgeable on the region or the religion um so it'd be great to hear from others what they thought as a poc i appreciated that the story was all brown people Although I feel a little complicated about a white woman writing about internal issues within the culture. The French are mentioned so much in that they are invaders in Cairo, which was great. Um, Culture, religion, and race can be so tied up with each other. I hope Chakraborty represented everything well and respectfully. And I hope we spoke about things in a way that were respectful as well. As always, let us know if we fucked it up. (laughs) Yep. We won't pull a Joe Biden. No. And not apologize. No. We, you know accountability is really important to us with the podcast so definitely let us know yeah but we'd also like to hear your thoughts on the representation in general yeah absolutely thank god god x guides universe whatever the whatever for the glossary this was really helpful for me especially when i was going back and trying to write notes about like oh my gosh this is so there's so much going on here how do i even start talking about world building or magic or any of especially Speaking for myself as a person who does not come from any of these traditions or cultures, 
the glossary was a paratextual element that allowed me to engage deeply with the foreign and fantastical concepts with which I was almost entirely unfamiliar. So I think this is a really, really good way to make material, I guess, accessible to to readers who you have who are inevitably not everyone's going to be in that culture right and i think it was it's funny because i didn't realize there was a glossary until the end so i kind of wish it was at the beginning because that would have been kind of helpful (laughs) to knowing it was there but like a lot of the clothing and those sorts of things like the dish dasha and um the chador like i had i just looked those things up yeah the chador yeah turbans and all that stuff yeah so some of it obviously i knew what it was just Mm -hmm. from like popular culture (laughs) right um but some of the things i just looked up and then i realized in the end that it was in the glossary but i do think it's really helpful to have those kind of things if you don't have internet access or or do not feel like looking it up exactly to your last point but if you don't feel like looking it up i think giving that information in the back i mean it's kind of like lazy reading practices but i'm Mm -hmm. totally guilty of that yeah of course Um, me too i think that it's a really good way that authors who are writing more diverse books Mm -hmm. who aren't just about like white culture and white people which like we need way more of those to put the glossary in the back and then it i think it's a really cool way for readers to keep learning right and it takes away the necessity of having to explain every like quote-unquote foreign thing yeah (laughs) Um, totally every time you bring it up or even the first time you don't have to explain it because well you have the glossary look it up right if you don't know what this means that's a reflection on you right it doesn't mean that people from that community need to tell you what's up right it means that you need to do your own work yeah and i really appreciate the glossary for that and i hope more books going forward do this yeah my only request is that they be at the front of the book instead of the back. So I know or that, that they're there. <laughs> or that maybe you can s- flip through and see if there's a glossary. I don't flip through because I'm scared I'm going to ruin something. But wouldn't it be a spoiler if you read all the glossary terms at the beginning? Oh, no, I never do. No. Really? It doesn't. Sp- if I kind of know what the story is about, that's like fine. Okay. There's magical elements. But maybe it is spoilery for some people. So I don't know what to do. <laughs> Put it in the front and the back. <laughs> Two glossaries. Mention that there's a glossary in the table of contents contents in the front yeah actually that would have been super helpful it was there was no table of contents for me so i just saw the map and then the story started so yeah that's what i need (laughs) okay so wtf is going on jamshid is obviously a nahid i don't know if maniza and her brother have a bunch of kids not with each other, but with other people. Which is good because when you first mentioned that, I was like, so like a Jamie Cersei Game of Thrones dynamic. But no, that's not what you're saying. No, I'm not. Or to create more Nahid so the group would become more difficult to get rid of. Like, I know that was supposed to be like cliffhangery. So I'm sure we'll find out more later. But I'm just like so intrigued. I have a prediction. What is your prediction? I predict that there has been like an underground movement mm. in the Devas to protect the Nahids and like kind of spirit them away to different places. And I think that there are a lot more Nahids in circulation who don't <laughs> know that they are Nahids. There is the dynamic, the problematic dynamic of who is withholding that information from yeah. those people. They don't or have, do they know they don't have consent. I don't think Jamshid knows. Yeah. Because it turns out that he has that tattoo, which is part of his, like his people's culture. But I'm wondering if other people in his culture have that tattoo because they're also hiding their healing ability yes that's what i mean yeah that's why i think that there's more nahids around Uh and maybe they don't know that they're nahids and it's been like a systematic they've had 1400 years to figure this out yeah 
and it's really necessary because that's we we saw the um on the deva part like the nahid part because we saw the um when a, a muntadir takes ali down to the crypt or something oh and it's God. just a bunch of bodies yeah and also how the bodies stay around for so long is that part of their like healing abilities <laughs> nahid bodies don't i don't decay. know or maybe they were just like skeletons or something yeah but like if they give their relics back well they can like Nahri bring them back. Is she even Nahid? I don't know. Well, I think she is Nahid. Okay. Nahid. But we don't know because she has healing abilities. Yeah. There's the like there's the implication in the novel that if you have healing abilities, you are Nahid. Yeah. But what if they're wrong? That could be. I don't know. It's so complicated. I'm like, what's happening? What's happening? I just want to know right now. Must start next book. <laughs> I don't have time to start the next no. book. I got another book to read by next week. That's right. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Such is the podcaster life. Good time to mention this isn't really a YA book. Maybe we should have mentioned that at the beginning. We probably should have. We'll put it in the show notes at the beginning. Maybe Kelly can do that. <laughs> Kelly's turn to edit. It me. Um, but it's not marketed as YA. No. Um, it's just a full-fledged fantasy book. I just wanted to read it because it was on these like list of awesome fantasy books, like yeah. those listicles, you know, yeah. that we that the book community is so fond of. Yeah, so many on Twitter. It's where I find most of our books. But it's hard because they say fuck a few times, but there's no sex in it. Yeah. So I'm like... Mm. But there is a fair amount of violence. Yeah, you know what? The violence wasn't as like difficult for me as the Poppy War for some reason. I think it wasn't as... um, Like, there wasn't as much of it. Um, yeah, it was... The Poppy War is pretty saturated with violence. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So for me, I was like... I could see how this book could be okay for a young person to read and not be concerned about them reading it and turning into some kind of serial killer or something. Unlike the Poppy War. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't let your kids read the Poppy War. At least Until like, they're a little older. Or like talk with them through it. I don't really know. Yeah. If or best... there has to be some sort of discussion. There has to be best practices when you have kids, but I don't know what those are. Neither do I. Don't really care. <laughs> when I talk to my dogs about the books, they usually don't respond to me in yeah. ways that I can understand. So exactly. I'm not the person to know. Recommend if you like any stories about political intrigue, revolution, challenging and nuanced characters and storylines. This book is hard, but it's worth it, I would say. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend. And I can't wait to read the rest of the series. Yeah. If you like Saba Tahir, this would be a good book. Absolutely. I had to read A Thousand and One Nights when I was in college and undergrad. And this kind of fits into that theme of, you know, magic and not really frame story, but kind of pulls you into a different culture that maybe you don't have as much exposure to. Absolutely. If you're interested in representation mm -hmm. from, you know, not just white people. But also kind of from white people. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, books not about white yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Which is very much what I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, then check this book out. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did it make you interrogate a concept, trend, or system that you hadn't before? I guess for me, what this re revealed is how little I know about specifically non-romance languages mm -hmm. and non-European history and culture. And I know some, but I'm really feeling more motivated to learn a lot more. What about for you? For me, it made me kind of interrogate this expectation um, Nisreen had that Nahri immediately assimilate to a culture she's unfamiliar with because she's technically part of that culture. 
Um, it's interesting to see how someone might move through a culture that they're not immediately familiar with, um, even though they're technically part of it. So it was just really interesting to me. And I, I can't imagine having to do that. And but at the same time, I guess I can. It's kind of like code switching a little bit. Like, yeah, I don't know, trying to be two people at once. And that can be difficult. That's a really excellent point. And it reminds me of the importance of socialization, too. Mm-hmm. That just because, I mean, like that, I guess it's a little bit the nature versus nurture Mm -hmm. or and nurture sort of debate Mm -hmm. that you can be a thing, but if you don't have contact with that culture, with that language, or, you know, there's not, you're not necessarily going to feel connected to it. Right. Which kind of goes back to that transracial adoption a little bit, because like, if you don't have any connections to that culture, like you lose out on those experiences. If people aren't willing to put in the work to make sure you maintain those things. Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Spin the Dawn by Elizabeth Lim. This is a, an arc that we got from NetGalley. NetGalley. Just full disclosure there. Also, watch out for the occasional mini-sode about a range of fantasy-adjacent topics. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post your tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. We follow the hashtag and we will see what you post, so go for it. If you have an idea for a book that we should add to our TBR, you can email us at jkmagicpod at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear your suggestions and also check out the TBR tab on our website, jkmagicpod.com. Know a friend who would enjoy the podcast? Please spread the word. You can subscribe to JK's Magic on the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling benevolent, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. JK's Magic is recorded on land of the Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho native people. Until next time, stay magical. And on episode 23, we're discussing City of Breasts. What? (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Already? Freudian slip. Breast. <laughs> I didn't say breast. It sounded like oh. breast. <laughs> well, we know what the blooper at the end is going to be. Mm, that's up to you. <laughs>